0: Good morning. good morning and it 's uh, good to be back last week. I was in uh, Petaluma, California, and I want to say hi to our new friends at the Petaluma Church, Greg and Mary, who brought me over and I was fortunate enough that Greg and Mary have both been professionally trained culinary arts school trained, and they studied in New York and in France. So I was blessed last week. <laughs> And I appreciate them uh, bringing us out, and we had a good time sharing this perspective out there. Let's begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We ask that your spirit will join us. Uh, Help us see through the confusing ideas that so often obstruct our ability to see you and your purpose for our lives more clearly. And may your angels join us today, hold back any evil forces, and may your spirit transform us to be like you. We pray in your holy name, Amen. And we are doing lesson number eight in the uh, quarterly biblical missionaries. And the title this week is Cross-Cultural Missions. And the uh, memory text is from Matthew twelve eighteen, 18. And the, uh, it's from the New King James Version. And it says the following, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. As you hear this verse, to what is this passage referring who is the one speaking? Who's the, the voice speaking here? My servant, whom I have chosen, whom I am well pleased. Who's is, who is the voice? It's God the Father, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And who is the servant, though, who he has chosen, whom he's well pleased in? Jesus. That would be Jesus. That's right. And when, when it says that Jesus will declare something to the Gentiles, what is he, what is he declaring to the Gentiles? What does it say in the verse? Justice. justice. So when you hear that, what is justice? When you think of justice, what comes to mind? Somebody said love and mercy. So you know in this class, one of the questions we frequently ask over the last couple of years is, what law lens are you looking through? So when you hear the word justice, and Jesus is declaring justice to the Gentiles, what law lens do you hear that through? And I just want to help you work through that. What law do human governments operate upon? What type of law? Imposed. Arbitrary rules made up which function how? How do they function? Punishment, coercion, threat, intimidation, power over, inflicted consequences. This is how the world operates and thus when you hear on TV... um, and I hear it all the time you hear the case of the shooter in Colorado who was just sentenced this week and they were deliberating whether he should get the death penalty or whether they should be life in prison and he had mental illness and this type of things going on and, and the pundits uh, on TV were constantly going but we need justice for those families justice for those families Okay. and what are they, what are they saying they need these, these pundits punishment. punishment and they were particularly arguing they wanted the death penalty in fact the, the prosecuting attorney argued for justice for those families That's through the imposed law lens. Do you understand that many Christians think God's justice is just like that? But, what law? How do you understand God's law? How do you understand God's law? Design law, natural law, protocols upon which reality work, expression of his character of love, truth, freedom, and then how does that function when it comes in contact with a lawbreaker? It seeks to deliver, to heal, to redeem, to restore, to put the lawbreaker back in harmony with the design, to fix what's wrong. It doesn't seek to punish, it seeks to heal and restore. Thus, Scripture, Psalms eighty-two, three: Defend the poor and the fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy. Or, Isaiah 1, 16 and 17. Wash yourself clean. Stop doing evil uh, the, that I see you doing. Yes, yeah, stop doing evil and learn to do right. See that justice is done. Help those who are oppressed. Give orphans their rights and defend widows. Or Jeremiah 21, 12. Uh, this is what the Lord says to the dynasty of David. Give justice each morning when uh, the people, to the people you judge. Help those who have been robbed. Rescue them from their oppressors. Notice the emphasis here. And so out an article from Christianity Today that I found online when I did a research on, on Christian justice. This is an article, first paragraph, and I've got the link in here if anybody wants to go to the article itself. It says Biblical justice involves making individuals, communities, and the cosmos whole by upholding both goodness and impartiality. It stands at the center of true religion. According to James, who says that the kind of religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world, James 1.27. Earlier, Scripture says, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern, Proverbs 29.7. You notice this is a completely different view of justice than the lawyers were arguing about and arguing for. Biblical justice is always delivering the oppressed, not punishing the oppressor. With that in mind, let's see if we can't take it a step deeper. If biblical justice is restoring and healing the oppressed, then what is justification? you following me on this? Justice versus justification... I had this discussion with some people in between my programs last week in Petaluma. Now, sadly, the people who came up to had discussion with me had missed three and a half out of the five programs that I did. So they weren't there for God in Your Brain, Designer or Dictator, and um, the, uh, the seven levels of moral development. They missed all those lectures. And then they came up after hearing, nearing the end, and wanted to discuss justification. And they and and in front of several people, one of those people discussing with me accused me of not being saved. Seriously, and he told me that he had a Christian duty to convert me, and I needed to repent. Oh wow! Did, you? did I? <laughs> and why did he say that? because his description of justification was accepting the legal payment to my heavenly record book in heaven and if I don't accept that legal payment and be declared righteous even though I'm not righteous I must be declared righteous in a legal court in heaven and if that doesn't happen then I'm not justified and if I don't believe that's happened then I'm still lost and I need to repent because because I need to get that legal payment made and applied to my account in heaven this is their view of justification and and I tried to explain to them I said justification is actually setting right what is wrong and what is wrong is our natural heart is against God. We're enmity to God. We are opposed to Him. We don't harmonize with Him. And we need our hearts set right. We need the law written on the heart and mind, not written in a book in heaven. That did not respond well to that. So I was called again that, that I, was, I was actually said, and this was during a break in between our programs, that I was deceiving this audience. Yes? Can't they be synonymous? Well, it depends on how you understand the record books. If you understand the record books as medical records, they keep track of what's actually happening in the heart, mind, and character of the believer, then we can have justification in the books of heaven because the books of heaven describe the sick condition of our heart, our selfishness, but they also describe that we have surrendered and have a new heart and right spirit, that it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, not in my record book, But the record book will show what's actually transpiring in me. Thus, the record books are being changed. But the mechanism of change is not through some court system where Jesus goes to a, a heavenly magistrate, presents his blood. The magistrate says, okay, let's go to the record book over here and make an entry in the book while I'm still unrighteous here. And this is what traditional penal substitutionary theology teaches is that when you accept the payment of Jesus in your behalf, Then in the heavenly courtroom, you are declared to be righteous, and this is key, following words, even though you are not. I said, so God's lying. I said that to them. They said, no, 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 it's not a lie because it's declared, and when God declares it, it's true, even if it's not that way. Do you see the inconsistencies? No, sin doesn't happen in books. Sin happens in intelligent beings, and God wants to restore his beings to wholeness. So what is the significance of Jesus bringing justice to the Gentiles? God is the creator of all humanity, and all human beings are members of the same species, and God's plan is to save, for God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, to save the sons of Abraham. No, to save the world, all human beings. His mission mission was for the entire race, not one subgroup. Of the race. Uh, I wrote out of the remedy in, in Romans 11, chapter 32. From God's perspective, all humanity is infected with the same illness of distrust and selfishness, and the entire human race is dying in need of the same remedy. And God mercifully offers full healing and restoration to all who trust Him. It's for the whole race, because the whole race is suffering with this, the whole species is suffering with the same condition. Sunday's lesson asks us to read John 4. 4 through 30. And this is the story of the woman at the well, and I thought I'd read it to you out of the remedy, and you can follow along whatever version you have, starting in verse 4. On his way to Galilee, he had to pass through Samaria and came to a town called Sychar, near the parcel of land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. This is where Jacob's well was located. Jesus was tired from his journey and sat down by the well. It was about noon. While Jesus was resting at the well, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus asked her, would you be kind enough to give me a drink. Jesus was alone because his disciples had gone to town to buy food. The Samaritan woman was momentarily stunned by Jesus' request because Jews were notorious for discriminating against Samaritans, women in particular, and wouldn't even talk to them. Once she recovered from her shock, she said to Jesus, what's going on that you, a Jew, would ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Jesus, with courtesy and respect, said, if you knew the gift that God has provided for all humanity, and who it is that is asking you for a drink? You would ask me, and I would give you the water of eternal life. Sir, the woman replied, the well is deep, and you have nothing with which to draw water. So where do you suppose to get the wa- this water of eternal life? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who dug this well and drank from it, as did his family and flocks and herds? Jesus patiently answered, everyone who drinks of the water from this well in just a short time becomes thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water of life I give him will never thirst again. In fact, the water I give will actually become a new fountain inside him and will overflow to eternal life. Upon hearing what Jesus said, the woman eagerly requested, well, sir, please give me this water so that I won't get thirsty ever again and and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus told her, you get your husband and come back. Go get your husband and come back. She replied, I don't have a husband. Jesus gently said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands, and the man you now live with is not your husband. So when you said you don't have a husband, that was quite true. Shocked and somewhat uncomfortable with the personal revelation, the woman said, Sir, to know such things you must certainly be a prophet. So please, help me with a problem. Our people have always worshipped God here on this mountain. But you Jews claim that we, the place we must worship is God, God is in Jerusalem. So which is it? Jesus declared, Believe me, dear woman, the place where one worships God is not important. It is the condition of the heart of the worshiper that matters. Very soon you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship a confusing tradition of rituals that doesn't enlighten the mind and has no ability to heal the worshiper. We worship the Creator God and our minds are enlightened and healed by him because all he asks of us is sensible and reasonable. The plan to heal humanity from the infection of selfishness and sin is provided through the Jews. The time has now come that all true worshipers will worship the Father with an intelligent, reasonable understanding of who He is, loving, admiring, and respecting the truth about His nature, character, and methods. These understanding worshipers are the kind the Father seeks. God is intelligent and reasonable, and the worshippers... And his worshippers must worship him intelligently and reasonably, appreciating and valuing the truth of God's methods and principles. The woman said thoughtfully, I know that the Savior of the world called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will make plain the truth about God and untwist all the confusing ideas about the Father. He will destroy the lives of Satan and prevent us, that prevent us from knowing God. He will explain the real problem regarding the infection of selfishness and sin within mankind and will reveal God's plan to heal and restore mankind to God's original ideal. Then Jesus proclaimed, I, who stand before you and am speaking with you, am he. Just as Jesus said this, his disciples returned and were shocked to find him talking to a woman, and not just any woman, but a Samaritan. They were too insecure to ask, why are you talking to her? What do you want with her? After hearing that Jesus, what Jesus had just told her, the woman forgot all about her water jar, rushed back to town and said to the people, come see a man who knew everything about me. Could this be the Savior we have been waiting for, the Christ? The townspeople were so intrigued by the woman's testimony that they made their way toward Jesus. Any thoughts, comments about this interaction? What do you think about the woman's current living situation? What do you think about her relationship history? She struggled in relationships, it sounds like. If a woman came to church today... Who had been married five times and was now living with someone who wasn't her husband? Would you ask her to be a missionary for your church? Yes. No. Did Jesus send her on a mission trip?
1: I think one of the versions says she, the whole town came out.
0: Yeah, the whole town came out. Yeah. She clearly. What was. What was Jesus thinking anyway? <laughs> I mean,
1: Outside the box,
0: obviously. Didn't Jesus worry that if he sent her on a mission to proclaim the Messiah had come, that, that, that they could misperceive that he was condoning her living situation? How, how could, how could she, he send her out until she actually fixed her life first? He didn't have to deal with committees. He didn't have to deal with committees. <laughs> did Jesus have a different standard in selecting who can be a gospel worker than churches today? Yes. Hmm. Should we, tell people, should we tell people in their current situation about Jesus? Should we share the water of life with them, the cohabitator, the alcoholic, the prostitute, the homosexual, the criminal? Should we share Jesus with them and ask them to share Jesus with others, or should we require that they first fix their life?
1: The, fix, the remedy is in sharing Christ.
0: Ah, so is there something therapeutic that happens in the heart of the sinner when that sinner not only experiences Christ but begins telling others and, and sharing Christ with others. There's something therapeutic happened in that process. Clearly.
1: And that includes those with pride and self-absorption. And-
0: so, so think through the consequence when we set up a system where people have to come to certain behavioral mechanistic changes in their life before we can allow them to go out and, change, and share Christ. We're actually undermining one of the very methods that transforms the soul. Helping others. Helping others. That's well said. Thank you. Did Jesus restrict Mary Magdalene from associating with him? Was she a member of his group, so to speak, his troop? Yes. I mean, when he when he went to um, Bethany, where did he stay? At her house. Yes. Why in the world would he permit this woman to be in his ministry team? Seriously, somebody who's got that problem can't be part of the team, can they? Share and wanted to learn more. Oh, I love where you're going with this. And then contrast. Did a rich young ruler come and request to be part of the team? Did he? No. And did Jesus take him in as part of the team? Or did he throw up some concerns for the rich young ruler to, to deal with? What was the concern that Jesus put back on him?
1: he, really he good wasn't good. keeping the Ten Commandments he thought he had been keeping all of his life because he was hoarding everything for himself and not being unselfish.
0: So what was the difference between Mary Magdala, and the, who was part of the team, and the rich, young ruler, who wasn't part of the team?
1: Understanding the mission.
0: Understanding the mission. What was that? She was willing
1: to follow Jesus.
0: She was willing to follow Jesus. Other thoughts? The rich, young ruler came saying he was willing to follow.
1: but, he actually, but she actually did it. That's the thing. Others sin
0: Oh, now we're getting down to it. She saw a need for a Savior as well. Who was humble and meek? Yeah. Which one of the two was more humble and meek? Which one of the two had less confidence in themselves?
1: Which one really wanted to learn?
0: Which one had a mind that wanted to be taught, to be, to be taught the ways of the Lord and God's true character? Everything that she had, she was using to... His cause. So, what, when she had that that box of of, of um, perfume that was worth an entire year's wages, so today maybe we're talking twenty five thousand, thirty five thousand dollar bottle of perfume in today's numbers for a blue collar worker, a twenty five or thirty five thousand dollar bottle of perfume. What did she do with it? She poured it on his feet. She, poured it on his feet. she gave all that she had. Do you notice the, the focus here? I'm just trying to contrast. How do we see? Are we looking through design law? Looking to the heart. Last week when I was uh, at Petaluma, the same, uh, same couple of people that were giving me difficulty about my own salvation also had a very difficult time understanding when I presented on homosexuality. And I, and I eventually had to just say, it seems to me that there's some here that are very much focused on the behavior of a person rather than the character of the person. Isn't our job to bring people to Christ, let Christ transform their character? And if there is a problem in the way they live their life, is it our job to tell them they can't live their life that way? Or is that the Holy Spirit's job to convict and transform? Hmm. But some still wanted to be fruit inspectors. (laughs) By their fruit you shall know them. (laughs) Yes?
1: The mindset of the rich young ruler was that he appeared to have confidence, but did he really? when he came to Jesus he was saying what must i do to be saved you wonder the people that will come to a seminar like yours in the desire to try to save you have that same question you know in their heart you know we must um build up what we think
0: but then the real inner question is is what we think really right and, and really do notice that he came with the question what must i do to be saved yeah. focus okay. yeah. yeah yeah what must i do to be saved yeah um Today, if we had both present themselves to us, Mary Magdala, struggling to eke out a living as a prostitute, and the rich young ruler, which one would more likely be on our church board first? Which one, really, did Jesus put on his church board? Notice that. I, I just think we sometimes look through the lens of the world. Look through the lens of the world. It talks about in the in the paragraph, it says, in Sunday's lesson it says also we shouldn't miss what happened to John four twenty seven. The disciples were surprised because Jesus was talking to a foreign woman. Uh it says Jesus followed Jewish customs when in Israel. However, in Samaria he was outside Jewish territory and not bounded by Jewish traditions, and though we have uh, as we've seen him elsewhere, blah, 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 it's suggesting that he followed Jewish traditions when in Israel, but outside of Israel he didn't. I had a question about that. The customs of the Jewish nation. Was it customary to do healing medical work on the Sabbath? Did Jesus do that in the Jewish nation? Was it customary to pick grain on the Sabbath? Did his disciples do that? Was it customary to instruct people to carry their mats on Sabbath? But Jesus did that as well. Uh, Was it customary to drive money changers out of the temple? (laughs) Well, Jesus did that in in the very temple in Jerusalem. Was it customary for religious teachers to visit homes of tax collectors? Did Jesus do that? Okay, so did Jesus actually follow the customs of the Jewish people when he was in Jerusalem? He, no. Here's here's the deal. Jesus didn't let custom interfere with his mission, no matter where he was. But he also didn't purposely violate customs that had no bearing on his mission. You understand it. the difference he there? He depended on the custom. You hear what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. He, he out of his way to.
0: He didn't go out of his way to violate customs that had no bearing on mission. Right. But if they interfered with mission, he didn't obey the custom, mm-hmm. regardless of territory. I, I don't like this argument that he obeyed the custom while in you know, in Israel, not to offend them. It's true if, if it didn't bear on mission. But if it bore on his mission, he would do what the mission required in harmony with God's design for things, irrespective of the custom. So we need to always keep God's design first and do that first, but we also don't need to purposely be culturally insensitive and offend people just because we understand it has no bearing. We can harmonize with custom as long as it doesn't interfere with mission. Monday's lesson talks about Roman centurion and ask Christ, who asked Christ to heal servant and had enough faith to say, you don't need to come to my house, you can just say the word and it'll be done. Uh, yes, Wendell.
1: You were talking about the prostitute who was accepted into the church board And the rich and ruler who wasn't. If you look at God's depiction of royalty, His royal witnesses are listed in Hebrews 11. And they include a lying prostitute. They include people who failed many times. But who were part of His royalty. Here are my examples of what it's like to be in the kingdom.
0: And what did they all ultimately have in common? Not that they were sick at one point in their life, sin-sick, sick with selfishness, and so forth, but that they partook of Jesus Christ and became different people with new hearts and right spirits. That's the key. Right. Um, so, how does, so how does culture play in our, our witness today? Do we allow cultural differences to interfere with sharing Christ? Think about the history in North America, how African Americans were treated in the, ni- in the 20th century, 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and especially in the southern states, by so- so-called Christian white leaders. Seriously. I mean, if you get your mind around that, it's like, really? The, 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 these are supposed to represent Christ? Look, look at how they're treating these people. they is so anti-Christian. Do you see how blind they were to this?
1: You know, the Bible didn't uh, disparage people from having slaves. It just said, treat your slaves right. It didn't tell the slaves to run away. It said, be good to your masters, be even better because you're Christians, and so on. So if people in our gener- you know, previous generations looked to the Bible about slavery, they might have seen plenty of examples of slavery. Wendell? That same attitudes would, uh, are currently done against other cultures, like those who are against abortion. You know, um, my son had a conversation with a coworker in which she said that, "Well, if they're going to have abortion and they're going to do it unsafely, they might as well just die."
0: Yes, hand up.
1: I think what Tim is saying is that when you have thinking, intelligent people who firmly disagree on an important moral point, that the majority is not necessarily right.
0: Exactly. When you
1: have, when you have thinking, intelligent people who disagree. The state should not be making that decision in every case.
0: That's right. We should leave individuals free to make up their own mind. Because when you take away liberty, love is always damaged and will eventually be destroyed. But as I watched this, there were really so much misinformation. So much mislabeling of what's really real. So much assumption what's not true. One of the assumptions, again, at conception. God, from heaven, made a divine act to create an immortal soul that is condemned to burn in hell for all eternity if the church doesn't either give last rites or baptize the baby. This is the theological platform which the whole movement is, is, is resting upon. And it's faulty. Number one, at conception, God isn't creating a divine act from heaven. God doesn't create sinners. God doesn't create defects. We have been given an ability Each one of us, by God, has given an ability to procreate. And and that ability can be used in a godly manner, as he's designed it, or it can be abused. So when a man rapes a woman, as happened in Sudan about 10, 15 years ago, where tens of thousands of Sudanese women were raped by Arab men for the purpose of having more children with Arab blood, these women shouldn't turn to God and say, Thank you, God, for creating new life. This was not an act of God. This was an act of sinful men abusing an ability that God had given them. Just as when God gave Samson strength, he did not control Samson's use of that strength. God gave Solomon wisdom as a gift, he did not control what Solomon did with that wisdom. God gave the human species in Adam and Eve the ability to procreate. But he doesn't decide where and with whom we use those abilities. That's up to us. And when you look about the miracle burst in the Old Testament, all these barren women, but God, but God, but God. God didn't get them pregnant. God healed a physical malady, like he healed blindness in the blind man, deafness in the deaf man. These women had a a reproductive physical problem with their reproductive organs. He healed their physical malady, and they still then had to have relations with their husbands. And if they didn't have relations with their husbands, there would have been no pregnancy. This was them using an ability they had now restored to them. Some of you offline would like to discuss some of the... I know you have many questions. I can tell you, every, in fact, every argument that has ever been put forth by the pro-life community that I've ever heard is flawed. It's false. It's distorted in some way. Every one of them. And if you think you have one that isn't, come up to me afterwards, and I will show you the faulty thinking or the false base of that argument. So, I'm not pro-abortion. I'm going to say it again. And I've rarely ever spoken publicly about this. And the reason I've rarely ever spoken publicly, here's why. Because so people are so emotional about this issue that they will label someone who is a pro-liberty, leaving people free to make up their own mind and converting, as an unchristian, he doesn't know the gospel, he doesn't know Christ, he can't be trusted, and you get blackballed. So this is, this is not a final message of mercy issue in my view at this time. So I rarely talk about it. Yes. So this, i um, not emotional about it. So just, just to understand, so when Ellen White had Adventists urge them to vote against the use of alcohol to make it illegal, that would go against their liberty to drink alcohol. Would you agree with her stance there or no? No, I completely disagree, and I think Ellen White learned a lesson from that, that she was wrong. She was also wrong in a, another position that she admitted, where she actually prayed for the healing of a particular person, and she prayed for this healing. And basically, in the way she prayed for it, and, and you can read and find this in her writings, she actually just went in and said, in the name of Jesus Christ, be healed, or something along those, those words. And the person was healed and went back out to live a very destructive, self-indulgent lifestyle. And she later asked the Lord, uh, why did you heal him if if this was only going to use this healing for more destruction? And, and he said to her, because you put me in a position that I either validated you as my messenger or I didn't validate you as my messenger. And she was wrong for actually, and she said she never prayed like that again. She was wrong. She wasn't right in every decision she ever made. Yes.
1: For me, it has always been about protecting the mother. What if 10 years after having an abortion, a woman chooses to have a baby and comes to believe that she was part of killing the first child? I'm not saying that it is true. It is what she believes. Could she not come to see herself as a child murderer, the same as someone who kills their newborn? What will that do to her?
0: Simple analogy. Your, your great-grandma's 92. She's had a stroke. She's in the ER. They put her on a vent. You and your sister are the next of kin, and they have to, you have to decide. Do we take her off the vent, or do we leave her on the vent? She's 92, has had a massive stroke. One of you thinks, well, let's take her off the vent, put her in God's hands, let nature take its course, whatever happens, happens. The other one thinks this, if I take her off the vent, I'll be murdering my grandmother. That's how you believe. Will you both be able to take her off the vent with the same consequence to yourselves? And will one of you be seriously damaged if you make that decision? And our mission as a church is to convert the world, not coerce the world. Yes? I think there's a reference of Alcohol legislation. If you look at historically what happened when government imposed a, a ban on alcohol, rebellion occurred. Alcohol and? Sales and consumption increase, and it's, it's natural law. That's right. It, 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 when you coerce behavior, you either rebel or you <coughs> shadow. That's why I think, Ellen White. You can, um, you, and like you've said many times in here, I mean, we, you can make it legal, you can legislate it legal, but you can never legislate it to be healthy. That's right. Back to the question of culture: Do we discriminate culturally today on things like Sabbath practice? How much of what our practices today are cultural versus God-directed? Not whether Sabbath is sacred or not, but Sabbath practices: what's okay to do on Sabbath and what's not okay to do on Sabbath. How much of that is God-directed? How much of that is cultural? Um, how about? And I'm not going to go through examples. I'm going to let you put this to your head to think. Dress. How much of that is God-directed? How much of that is cultural? Um, music. Worship. The, the organization of the liturgy. Um, tithe. What about diet? This week I received in the mail this, uh, which is um, Loma Linda's... Um, Update for the um, Adventist Health Study Two. Those who participate probably got one. I got one. And um, in the newsletter this week, it actually uh, docu- uh, documented that the the uh, cancer that that is the second highest killer in America after lung di- lung cancer is colorectal cancer. And it then tracked uh, in f- five dietary groups the rate of colorectal cancers uh, in the five dietary groups. Uh, the highest being the non vegetarians that eat anything. And then there were four vegetarian subgroups. One is the semi-vegetarian who eats meats once in a while. Uh, then the pesco-vegetarian who eats fish and, and, that's, and that's the only meat they eat when they eat it. And then the lacto-ova vegetarian, you know what that is. And then the vegan. And uh, which group now every one of the veggie groups, those four, all had lower colorectal cancer rates than the non-vegetarian groups. All of them did. So that was good. But there was one group that had substantially lower. The lowest lowest. Lowest of the low. And I'm going to give you the rates. Um, the, the rates of the, of the vegetarian groups were, you had a benefit of either 8% less risk of cancer, that was one of the groups, 16% less risk with another group, 18% less risk with another group, 43% less grip, risk with the other group. So the 8% less risk, less risk was the semi-vegetarian, they they eat just less often. That, that makes sense. The 16% less risk was the vegan group. The 18% less risk was that lacto-over group, and the 43% less risk was the pesco group, the ones who ate fish in their diet. Um, this is just one aspect of health. It's not the total package of all human health. What uh, the authors felt, that, that, that all, the, plant, all the, the veggie groups had more fiber in their diet, so this was a factor that reduced more plant fiber in their diet. But they also felt that the Pesco group had higher omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin D, and arachidonic acid, which was also another factor that helped fight the cancer because omega-3s are anti-inflammatory and uh, help reduce inflammation, which can be... I just found that interesting. The lesson asks us to read Luke 8, uh, 26-39, and since it's getting late, I won't read that. I have it in here from the remedy. Uh, This is the story of Jesus uh, coming to the uh, Gerasenes and the demoniac, Um, and if you know the story, I'm going to assume that you're all familiar with the story, because I'm going to ask questions based on the facts of this story. Um, but he, came, he was living in a graveyard. He comes out and he, and he uh, shouts, You know, uh, uh, have you come to torture us, uh, son of the Most High? And who, what is your name, Legion? And well, don't send us into an abyss type thing. And uh, off into the pigs they went and over the, over the hill. You know the story, there's details there. Now, I, I believe this literally happened. I think it's a real historical event. But I also think this serves as an object lesson. And I want you to understand the object lesson. And then we're going to ask the question, what's the difference between mental illness and demonic possession and demonic influence? What's the differences? So, here's the object lesson part. What is our condition in the state being separated from Christ? Meaning, how would our minds operate if we are disconnected from God's influence? If you're not sure, here's a quote, a historical quote, Signs of the Times, July 11, 1895. The Lord says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman... The enmity does not exist as a natural fact. As soon as Adam sinned, he was in harmony with the first great apostate and at war with God. And if God had not interfered in man's behalf, Satan and man would have formed a confederacy against heaven and carried on a united opposition against the God of hosts. There is no natural enmity between evil angels and evil men. Both are evil through transgression of God's law, and evil will always league against good fallen men and fallen angels enter into desperate companionship. What's our natural state? If we are separated from Christ, what's our natural state? In league with selfishness and self-centeredness. Okay, So I'm suggesting that the demoniac, not only was a real person, there's an object lesson here. Where would we be as human beings separated from Christ? We'd be like the demoniac. Now where was he living? Is there an object lesson there? <laughs> Okay, what does it say we are separated from Christ what's our condition we are dead in trespasses and sin there's an object lesson here when the demoniac came into Christ's presence what happened what was the initial consequence of coming to Christ's presence fear Fear, protestations allegations allegations of wrongdoing against the, the righteous have you come to torture us notice the projection externalization the allegation, have you come to torture us? And the fear, of course, as well. What happens when truth first comes? When someone comes, truth first comes to your awareness when you're living in, in ways outside of God's design. Fear, protestations, externalizations, blame, uh, finding fault with others. You're critical. You're self righteous. You're always trying to put me down. You're coming you're to condemn me. You ever hear this from people? Did you, go, did you ever do it yourself before you were ready to accept? What did Jesus do? Did Jesus condemn him? Not at all. He always did. He the truth and love and left him free. And he cast out the evil forces from the man's heart and freed him. Jesus, if you come to Jesus, even all misunderstood, even Jesus, even thinking that Jesus is coming to torture you, but if you really come to him, he casts out the evil forces, he shows you his love who he really is, he sets you free. And where did the evil angels, the demons, the evil angels, where did they go? They went into a herd of pigs, which what do you think the metaphor here is? How how does the Bible describe those who reject Christ? Brute beasts. Creatures of instinct said only to be caught and destroyed. And what did, the, what did the pigs do as soon as the evil forces went into them?
1: Self-destroyed.
0: Self-destroyed. A powerful metaphor. For those who are brute beasts, creatures of instinct, sin always leads us in pathways of self-destruction. We destroy ourselves. This is a great story. If you can take it and, and learn lessons more than just the individual person being involved, I think God is trying to teach us something and thus the Bible says the one who sows to please a sinful nature from that nature reaps destruction. Galatians 6, eight. So what is what about the question of demonic activity versus insanity? What is insanity? Out of your right mind. Good good yes, being insane, which means but no, not sane, out of your right mind, utterly senseless. That's what being insane means. So what determines whether someone their actions and decisions and thinking are, irrational, are sane, rational, reasonable, and sensible, or insane, irrational, unreasonable, senseless. Which determines that? What determines that? If we're in harmony with God's law. It's the understanding of how reality is working, right? So uh, ultimately, we understand God's law, and so harmony with that is sane, rational, reasonable. Again, what law lens do you look through this question of Wisdom versus foolishness, sanity versus insanity. What lens? Is it wise or foolish to, when you're behind on your bills, to pay tithes and offerings? When you're behind on your bills to pay tithes, wise or foolish to pay? Is it wise because... I'm going to mess with you guys now. Is it wise because... Okay, I'll say, is it wise or foolish to go ahead and pay your tithes and offerings because you know God has promised that if you give, he will return more financial blessing to you so it is in your financial best investment that you can make. And if you don't, you'll break your contract with God and he won't give back. Thus, it's wise to go ahead and give. Is that wise or is that foolish? So is it wise or is it foolish? Foolish. They said selfish twice. So is it wise or is it foolish? It's, it's foolish. And there are many people that say, this is level two thinking. This is level two thinking. I've got to deal with God. I've got to pay. I've got to pay my tax. I've got to pay my tithe. If I don't pay my tithe, then God won't pay me. So I'm going to, I'm going to pay so I can make my deal with God. But what about this? If one loves God and others and recognizes the importance of the gospel going to the world and one gives regardless of the consequence to them because they love God and they love people and they want to help spread the gospel message like the woman giving her two mites. Is that wise or foolish? Wise. That's wise. Wise. So it's not the act of giving itself. It's the condition of the heart. It's back to the condition of the heart. Exactly.
1: Because it belongs to God first, it's not mine in the first place.
0: Yes, because it belongs to God, it's not mine, I have to give it to him, it's not mine to keep.
1: But in that sense...
0: You could still harbor some resentment in your heart like that if, if you look at it that way. If you look at it through love for God that you're doing it, then you don't have that resentment in your heart. So, from, from the remedy, I'm going to read to you First Corinthians 1, 9 through um, 25 very quickly. It says, uh, 19, excuse me, 19 through 25. It says, For the scriptures reveal that God's methods of self sacrificing love will destroy the world's wisdom of promoting self first. The apparent logic of working for self-exaltation, fame, personal advancement, or financial wealth, rather than bringing healing and restoration, will be shown to actually accelerate the damage to one's mind and character. So then, what value is there in the wisdom of the selfish man, or the agnostic professor, or the atheistic scientist, or the psychologist of the new age? God has shown that all wisdom, based on the principles of this world, is in reality foolishness, silliness, nonsense. For after those who value the methods of the world rejected God and denied his existence, God joyfully revealed his wisdom by actually healing and transforming all those who trust him on the basis of the simple message of God's selfless love revealed by Christ. The Jews and many like them demand supernatural signs and wonders, which they fail to realize can be counterfeited, and the Greeks look for look only for intellectual explanations, but we preach God's self-sacrificing sacrificing character of love revealed by Christ crucified. It's a roadblock to the egocentric Jews and utter nonsense to the self-seeking Gentiles. But to all who respond to God's call, whether Jew or Gentile, Christ is the embodiment of the character, wisdom, and power of God. For the simple love of God is wiser than all humankind's self-centered scheming. God's love literally heals and restores. All this love of, all this love of God, which appears weak to the world, is stronger than all the strength of selfish humanity. Thoughts? What is insanity? Believing reality works like the world says it does, and then choosing to diverge from God's design. That's insanity. So, here's a historic view. This is out of Maranatha, page 108. Today, the world is mad. And insanity is upon men and women, and is hurrying them on to eternal ruin. Every species of indulgence prevails, and men have become so infatuated with vice that they will not listen to warnings and appeals. And then, this is um, out of uh, Worker's Bolt in September 9, 1902. All sin is selfishness. What is sin, guys?
1: Selfishness.
0: Yes, and then? According to scripture, sin is transgression. transgression of the law or lawlessness or stepping outside of how law God designed life to function. We understand design law. That really is crazy. It's like, it's crazy for people to step off a building and think they're going to have a long life. Step off Empire State Building and on their way down, they pray to God for law, good health and a long life. That is crazy prayer. That's my patients who pray for good lungs and smoke two packs a day. <laughs> They do, I have some patients smoke, they pray every day, give me, give me healthy lungs, help me breathe better, but they smoke two packs a day. That's a crazy prayer, because it's outside of how life is actually constructed to operate. Satan's first sin was manifestation of selfishness, he sought to grasp power or to exalt self. A species of insanity led him to seek to supersede God. What does this mean? Why was it insane? Because it was like saying, I'm going to stop breathing and live longer. I'm going to separate from the source of life and have better life. That's insane. And the temptation for... Uh, That led Adam to sin was Satan's declaration that it was possible for man to attain something more than he already enjoyed, possible for him to be as God himself. The sowing of seeds of selfishness into the human heart was the first result of the entrance of sin into the world. God desires everyone to understand the evil of selfishness and to cooperate with him in guarding the human family against his terrible, deceptive powers. A remedy for the terrible consequence into which selfishness led the human race, as a remedy, God gave his only begotten son to die for mankind. What more could he have given? In this gift he gave himself. I and the Father are one, Christ said. By the gift of his Son, God has made it possible for man to be redeemed and restored to oneness with him. Love is the great principle that actuates unfallen beings. The heavenly hosts are filled with intense desire to work through human agencies to restore in man the image of God. Every attribute, every power of divinity has been placed at the command of those who unite with the Savior in winning men to God. So, what is it to be insane? To be selfish. It's counter to the way life in the rest of the universe runs. So, I've got this final quotation to share with you. It was a written as a personal letter by Ellen White to Brother Craig, who was leading out one of our institutions, and was counseling regarding the behavior of a childish self-centered wife. And we talk talking about demonic issues here. She has well learned the secret of acting for effect, of creating a sensation and calling attention to her small self. I have seen but few persons as successful in making self the center of attraction when there was so little sweet, noble, genuine attractiveness in the character. But unless she changes her course, this acting for effect, this desperate maneuvering to force the attention of her husband and gain his sympathies will finally be repeated once too many times and God will give her fully into the hands of Satan. Unless there's a change, a time will come when this lower nature in the wife, controlled by a will as strong as steel, will bring down the strong will of the husband to her low, to her own low level. He would then be, his will would then be merged in that of the impulsive, inconsistent, insane wife. He would no longer be a man, for the satanic mold upon the character of the wife would be upon him also. Brother Craig has felt that it was his duty to fight her battles, become as inconsistent in her behalf as she is herself. See through her eyes and contend for her rights. For unless he does this, she will indulge in those awful outbursts of passion. What she's saying here, he's married to this woman who's childish and can't get her way. And when she doesn't get her way, she throws temper tantrums, slams doors, screams, hollers, whines, gripes, and it pressures him to feel bad. And so he gives in to her way, but in so doing, he's slowly losing his manhood. Let's keep going. Her oft-repeated assertions draw upon his sympathies and a continual burden is cast upon him, upon her, upon him by her manufactured physical disabilities. And this is a violation of the law of liberty, guys, that I'm describing here. It is a coercive pressure based off emotional, um, acting out to coerce the husband to give in. It's a liberty violation which destroys. Same thing we were talking about earlier. But the folly of the mother and the relatives must not become the folly of the husband. Should he follow in their footsteps, his, his life and hers would also be wrecked. Better would it had they never been born. Not certainly not terminating a pregnancy here. I don't think that that's not what I'm talking about. <clears throat> Better would it had been they never been born. As it is, she is a fit subject for the insane asylum, for God has shown me that she throws herself wholly into the hands of Satan, soul, body, and spirit. Notice, God has shown me. This was revelation. And his power through her is deadening the fine sensibilities of right and integrity in her husband. If she were a child, she could be treated as a child. These outbursts of temper could be punished as those of a self-willed, passionate child. But she is a woman, and her husband cannot force her perverse will to be reasonable. Never will this exacting temperament be improved by yielding to it. Her tragical performances are enacted to frighten her husband to comply, into complying with her demands, and he must yield or have a scene. As Satan sees how he can work through her when she thus casts soul and body into his hands, that he can use her as he pleases he will throw her into these paroxysms more and more whether her will is, whenever her will is crossed. It is, in this case, it is not the woman whom Brother Craig is dealing with, but a desperate satanic spirit. Mm-hmm. Now, this, this article, I only read you like four paragraphs. It's, it's, I think, 12 pages long. There's much more in this article that, that is described of what's happening here. But did you notice there wasn't any levitation? There wasn't any supernatural signs or wonders. There wasn't talking in a deep, crazy voice and the, and the wind blowing through with the closed windows and all this kind of crazy things you see in movies. It wasn't happening. What was happening was extreme self-centeredness used to manipulate, control, coerce, and dominate another human being. That's what was happening here. This is counter to God's benevolent character of love and grace and freedom. And we see coercive methods being used, and this is where I was back to, again, I'm not pro-abortion we talked about earlier, I'm pro-freedom. Present the truth in love, convert people. But once you start using coercive pressure, as we have other quotes that I read last week, all coercive methods are found only in Satan's government. None in God's government. And that's the real deal. And I hope I haven't offended anyone here today. And I hope you understand that I really want to see people converted to live in harmony with God's methods of truth, love, and freedom. Promote life. Be a life promoter. But do it with God's methods of truth, love, and freedom. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love. You didn't use your power to, to force Satan in line when he rebelled in heaven. You didn't use your power to force us to bend the knee on on threat of punishment even though that is how you are often presented. We ask that your spirit of truth, your spirit of love will come, enlighten our minds, change our hearts. Give us the capacity to love even when it requires that we sacrifice ourselves to love because that is not natural to our heart. Our natural heart wants to stand up, wants to protect, wants to promote our own rights, wants to demand that we get what what we think we deserve. And we can't change our heart, Lord. We look to Jesus and know that he's already won that victory for us. We ask the Spirit will take all that Christ has achieved and and restore in us the the character of Christ, that we will love our enemies more than we love ourselves. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.